Well, good morning again. I love the songs that we have sung this morning, but as I'm standing with you worshiping, it does strike me, we sometimes sing things we don't mean. There's that song we were just singing, when people know the gospel, when they truly see the light of God and understand him, then they'll dance with joy like we're dancing now. (laughs) Which is true that we should dance with joy when we understand the truth of who God is and what he's done. But we say it with our feet fused to the ground and thinking about clapping. And that's, um, that's not a comment on you. I'm speaking to myself, and I'm, I guess I'm speaking to us by saying, as we worship together, we've got to help each other worship God so that when we come into this place, we know we come into a place where there are a bunch of other people in here who know and love him. And the truth is, no matter how difficult the reality of my life as I walk into this place, I am overwhelmed by the goodness of God, and all I can do is praise him. Praise him along with the clouds and the moon and the rocks and the just how good is God. So that when we sing, they'll dance with joy like we're dancing now. We might at least be rhythmically swaying as we say it. And I know for some of us it's just a discomfort, and I, I'm not saying dance. In fact, I might, no, I don't know what I'm saying. I'm not saying dance, but I'm saying let's, let's help each other worship God. Let's come into this place and help each other worship God. And I want to thank you because I love being here because you are the family of God to us, to my family, to my children, to me, so thank you. And I know that's true for some of you. You'd say that to others in this room, so thank you. None of that is in my message this morning. I just felt compelled to say it as we were worshiping God together, and we're going to have an opportunity to worship Him after we hear from His Word this morning. So that's my challenge to us this morning. Let's praise God together, and let's help each other be worshipers of Him always, not just when we're here. Anyway... This morning, we continue our brand new series through the book of Luke, in which Luke is giving us an account of Jesus' ministry and Jesus' life. And um, whether you have been with us for a long time or whether you've just been with us for a couple of weeks or just this morning, you'll find out that we talk about Jesus a lot here. And there's a reason for that. Because if we call ourselves followers of Jesus, and if our hope is in Jesus, and our call is to introduce Jesus to people who don't know him, then we should know him, and we should talk about him, and we should learn about him. We should know what kinds of things he did and what kinds of things he said. Well, when we think of Jesus traditionally outside of church, what do we think of? If you were to talk to someone in a restaurant and say, what do you think of when you think of Jesus? They would say, well, he has long flowing brown hair, um, freshly conditioned usually, (laughs) a very well-trimmed beard, a white robe, a blue sash. Sometimes it's red. Usually it's blue. 
He's probably carrying a lamb around with him, or he's walking around with his arms out, his palms up, looking at the clouds. Because that's the picture of Jesus that we've been given. I don't think that's an accurate picture of Jesus. And Luke, in writing his gospel, intends to give us an accurate picture of Jesus. That's why he wrote it. So that we would understand from people who were really there and walked with him and heard him speak what he was really like. And Luke tells us all of it, the amazing things that Jesus did and said. Luke tells us the confusing things that Jesus did and said. He tells us the really difficult things that Jesus did and said. Sometimes they're difficult because we don't understand them. Sometimes they're difficult because we understand them and we wish we didn't. But Luke puts it all down in this gospel for us, and that's why we're studying it together. So this morning we're looking at Luke chapter 4, which is Luke telling us of the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Some of you know that story, some of you don't. This encounter by itself is significant. There's something significant for us to get from it, and it gives us insight into Jesus' preparation for his ministry. But this encounter also is one of those passages in Scripture that has huge significance for the grand narrative, like the big story of of the gospel, not just Luke chapter 4, not just the life of Jesus, but has massive implications for the Bible. So I want to ask you this, and you don't have to respond, like don't raise your hand, but let me just ask you, how many of you, this is a personal question by the way, that's why I'm saying don't raise your hand, how many of you read your Bible? How many of you open your Bible outside of Sunday morning? The reason I'm asking the question is not to make you feel guilty about it, but because I think it's important If you want to walk with Jesus, if you want to call yourself a follower of Jesus, and you want to do that well, you have to spend time in his word. And if we come to a passage like this morning with no understanding of the whole story of the Bible, it doesn't mean as much as when we understand the full story of Scripture. So we're going to talk about that a little bit this morning. And just as a quick plug, read your Bible. little commercial for the Bible this morning. Read it. Open it this week. If you don't open it regularly, and if you do, keep doing it, because as we understand Scripture, we understand God. It's His words to us. I think what we're going to see this morning is how this specific encounter kind of weaves the narrative of all of Scripture together, makes the life of Jesus and what He came to do even more significant if we don't already understand it. So, as we open God's Word, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we're excited to be in your word this morning, and we just ask, Lord, in this place, when we come together as your family, help us to worship, help us to praise you well. As we open your word and we look into it, would you help us to understand it? Help us to understand you, and help us to follow you well. Lord, we know we can't do it on our own. We can't effort that, so we ask for your help. Through your spirit, would you help us to follow you? Lord, we, even now, we think of our brothers and sisters in Ecuador and we lift them up. I think of Len and Beth this morning, whose friends are far away and hurting. And I pray that you'd be with them this morning. And thank you for the family of God that we can support from afar because of you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So last week, we blasted through 
three chapters of Luke. This morning, if you would, turn with me to Luke chapter 4. That's where it brings us this morning. We're going to take a much smaller section this morning. And if you need a Bible this morning or didn't bring one, we've got them in the seats around you. You're welcome to grab one of those and use it if it's nearby. We're going to be on page 859 of our Bible, so toward the back, page 859, Luke chapter 4. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, please take that with you. We'd love for you to have it. Before we start Luke chapter 4, it'd actually be helpful for us to get a little bit of context from Luke chapter 3 to just back up a little bit and look at something specifically that we didn't look at last week. Two things that I think help us understand what Luke is trying to tell us and who Jesus is. John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3 is, surprise, baptizing people. That's what we find him doing, and he's baptizing them in anticipation of the Messiah. John is telling people about the coming judgment and the coming salvation, and he's saying, repent and get ready because the Messiah is coming. And if you look back with me in chapter 3, verse 21, it says this, now when all the people were baptized... And when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened up and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. One of these baptisms is not like the other ones. And it's Jesus. In fact, in Matthew's account, He tells us that as Jesus comes to be baptized by John, John says, I don't think that's how it works. I think you should baptize me. And Jesus says, no, it's right that I would be baptized, not because he has to repent of sin, but because Jesus has put himself in our place as a man. He's following exactly, he's setting a course for us. He's giving us an example to follow. And the statement that he's making is, I am a man I'm a man. Immediately following his baptism, he's identified by God as his son. There's something special going on here, and by all accounts, this would be really dramatic if you were there. He's baptized. He's walking out as he's praying. The heavens open up. What does that mean? Not sure. Picture that. I don't know what it looks like. It's depicted as the clouds breaking apart and light pouring down on Jesus. I don't know. The clouds open up. The heavens open up. And a dove descends down on Jesus. The Spirit of God in the form of a dove descends down on Jesus. And then a voice from heaven speaks. That would be a big deal. You would remember that. That's why Luke writes it down. What do we see in this moment of time? Because we've heard this before, most of us. We see the Trinity in one place celebrating the incarnation of God. We see God the Father speaking. We see Jesus the Son. We see the Spirit of God descending on him in that moment, celebrating the fact that God has become man to redeem his people. It's initiating the ministry of Jesus. And we know the end of the story. We know the reason why he's doing it. Luke is telling us in writing this down in no uncertain terms, Jesus is the Son of God. There's no question God himself said it. And then immediately following that, if you were to just keep reading in Luke chapter 3, 
you would see everybody's favorite thing in all of Scripture, a genealogy. Everybody loves these. So we're going to read the whole thing. No, I'm kidding. Start with me, verse 23, and then we'll skip a lot, okay? Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. Now, why does he say that? Because whose son is he? He's God's son. But it looks like his adoptive father is Joseph. That's basically what he's saying. And it looks like he's Joseph's son. But for those who know the whole story, we know that he's the son of God. Okay, skip a bit to verse 38. Okay. He's the son of, the son of, the son of. That's what we get through this whole part. And then it says, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Who's Jesus? He's the son of God. And the interesting thing about Luke's genealogy is it goes all the way back to Adam and then ultimately back to God himself. Why does he do that? Why does he connect Jesus to Adam and to God? Even though he just told us Jesus is the son of God at his baptism. Because Jesus is the new Adam. He's like the replacement Adam. Because Adam's sonship to God failed through sin. Jesus will do what Adam didn't do. Jesus is the Son of God who will do it right. Jesus will do it better. Maybe you've heard it put this way. Christ, the Son of God, became a son of Adam so that we, the sons of Adam, could become the sons of God. That's the purpose in the incarnation of Christ. And Luke is saying in no uncertain terms, Jesus is the Son of God. He wants to make sure that his readers understand that because remember, he's trying to give us an accurate picture of who Jesus is. Now we get to Luke chapter 4. Luke has established that Jesus is the Son of God. He's established the presence of the Holy Spirit with him at his baptism. And now we see his final preparation for his ministry, which is his temptation in the wilderness. So look with me, starting in verse 1 of chapter 4. It says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. First thing, Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit, led by the Spirit, in the wilderness. Remember last week, looked at those first three chapters. The Holy Spirit is everywhere in those first three chapters. I don't know if it's a surprise to you or not to see this emphasis on the Holy Spirit, not just in Scripture or in the Gospel, but this emphasis of the role of the Holy Spirit in the life and ministry of Jesus. I think it surprises us because we think of Jesus as God in a human suit. We kind of think of Jesus as like God who put on like a human costume and then just kind of went on autopilot like a dotted line that showed all the steps he was supposed to take and all the words he was supposed to say. Jesus is the Son of God, yes, who has put himself in our place as a man. He made himself like us. He didn't insulate himself that way. Didn't insulate himself from the world. He just dove in head first, and said, I'll be like you, and I'll show you how to do it, and I'll fix what you broke. That's what we see in the incarnation of Christ. Hebrews 4.15 says it this way, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, 
but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus can sympathize with what it's like to be us because he was us. That's the emphasis that Luke is putting on this. So Jesus, led by the Spirit, goes into the wilderness. Now, when I hear this, I think of like walking out into the woods on uh, like a solitude retreat. This is not a retreat. This is a wilderness. In fact, between Judah and the Dead Sea is a wilderness called Jeshimon, which is um, translated as the devastation. Sounds like a nice vacation spot, right? I'm going to spend 40 days in the devastation, okay? A desolate wasteland, that's what we're looking at. So if you think of this in the grand picture of the Bible, if Jesus is the new Adam, Jesus gets the opposite of Eden. This is like everything Eden wasn't is where Jesus is for these 40 days. This is where Jesus goes. He doesn't eat anything for 40 days. Why does Luke tell us excuse me, then, that he's hungry. Of course he's hungry. He hasn't eaten in almost six weeks. Why does he emphasize that? Partly, I think, to emphasize that Jesus is a man. He needs food like we do. He's not a spirit wandering the wilderness. He's a man wandering the wilderness, and he's hungry. He hasn't eaten in almost six weeks. The other reason, I think, is because it creates a contrast. Because he's empty, right? He's hungry. He hasn't eaten, but what is, he's not full of food. He's full of the Holy Spirit. There's a clear contrast in those first two verses. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, not full of food. He's hungry. He's a man. There's an emphasis on the spiritual dependence of Jesus in the wilderness on the Spirit of God as he's tempted over 40 days. He's tempted over the entire 40 days, I believe is how we read that, and then that Temptation culminates in these three temptations that Luke specifically records for us. So look at them in order with me. The first one, number one, starts in verse three. It says, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Pretty simple, pretty straightforward. The devil comes up to him and says, hey, if you're the son of God, Make that stone bread and eat. And Jesus says, no. Right? That's easy. The first temptation seems simple. I think if we look at it a little more closely, there are all kinds of implications here of the big story, the big story of Scripture. Why would this be a temptation for Jesus? When I first read this, I think, he's Jesus. He, He knows this is a trick, right? And he doesn't have to have bread. I'm sure he's hungry, but this doesn't seem that tempting to me. I don't think that Satan, some people would say, I think Satan's saying, prove that you're God. Prove you're the son of God. I I don't think that's what he's saying, because if I read this correctly, the language here is actually an assumption. First, who's he going to prove it to? He's alone in the wilderness with the devil, unless he needs to prove it to him. Also, the way this is written sounds like an assumption since you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. If you're God, make some food. What is the temptation? The temptation is, why should the Son of God suffer? Why should you be hungry? You're the Son of God. You have connections. You have access to unlimited power. 
Why would you suffer? Just use that power, just a little bit of it, and get what you want. You know you're hungry. Use it to satisfy your desires. Take what you want. Does that sound familiar to you at all? Does it remind you of anything? Think back to Adam. Jesus is the new Adam. How did Satan tempt Adam and Eve? Doesn't that look good? Don't you want that? Take it. Just take what you want. Clearly, there's a parallel here to the garden. Do you remember anyone else being in the wilderness without food? Maybe not for 40 days. Maybe it was 40 years. Do you remember that? Not starving, but hungry in the wilderness for 40 years. Psalm 106 says it this way, in the wilderness, their desires ran wild, testing God's patience in that dry wasteland. Hey, wasteland, that's where Jesus is. When the children of Israel were in the desert, shaking their collective fist at God, remember that story? Saying, why haven't you provided for us, God? At least when we were in Egypt, we ate well. I mean, we were slaves, yes, but we had good food, which just shows where our priorities are. I don't care where I have to swear my allegiance as long as I eat well, right? And I can easily see myself doing the same thing. That's what's so embarrassing about it. That is where our priority is. I'm uncomfortable. What's wrong with you, God? But Jesus did it better. He did it better than Adam. He did it better than the children of Israel. In fact, his answer references that specific moment in the desert. Because what does he say? Man shall not live by bread alone. Where does that come from? Deuteronomy chapter 8. It says, and he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of of the Lord. That's the bigger quote that Jesus is giving. Man does not live by bread alone means a lot more than what it sounds like on first read. That passage recalls the children of Israel when God made magic bread appear out of nowhere like dew on the ground every day for year after year after year And God said, you don't live because you have bread. You live because you have me. I can make bread. That's not the problem. I'm God. I will provide. Trust me. And Jesus says, listen, you may have succeeded in getting Adam to take matters into his own hands. You may have succeeded in getting God's children to question you and not trust you in the wilderness, but that's not going to fly with me. That's not going to work I will be satisfied by what God gives me. I don't need to take it into my own hands. So that didn't work. Verse 5, the second temptation. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will if you then will worship me It will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. The second temptation attacks in a different way. In this moment, maybe in a vision of some kind, 
Satan shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. And then he just offers it to him. He says, I'm going to give you all this authority, and I'm going to give you all the glory that goes with it. And I can give it to you right now. You're here to get a kingdom, right? You're here to get these kingdoms, right? You want all these people to serve you. I'll give them to you right now. You can have it all. You don't even have to suffer. You don't have to wait. You can have it now. It's mine to give. What I find interesting here is that Jesus doesn't argue that point. When Satan says it's mine to give, Jesus doesn't argue with him. He actually answers him. That surprises me at first. If we look through Scripture, though, Jesus actually references that same thing often. And Satan even tips his hand in here a little bit because he says all the kingdoms of the world have been delivered to me, which actually means I'm still subordinate to God. (laughs) And they've been delivered to me for a time. I have temporary authority. And right now, I can give it all to you. What's the catch? Just worship me instead of him. What I have to offer you is better than what God has for you. It's easier, and I'm not sure God even has your best interest in mind. If he did, why would he ask you to suffer? Why would he ask you to go through all this? You know what's coming, at least partly you know what's coming, and you know I'm not going to let up. Does that sound familiar? Does God really want what's best for you, Adam, Eve? I think he's keeping something from you, actually, something good, something you want, What I have is better than what God offers. But Jesus did it better than Adam, right? Because his defense, again, is God's word. And his defense, again, comes out of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, which says, It's the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. Jesus says, I will not exchange the worship of God for some shabby substitute. Offense intended, by the way. (laughs) I am not going to exchange the worship of God for some cheap replacement like the children of Israel did in the wilderness when God opens the sea before them and moves them across the other side, destroys the armies of Egypt, and then they say, hey, you know what would be cool is if we could worship a golden cow. That's what the children of Israel did. They exchanged the worship of God for a cheap substitute. Jesus says, I'm not going to do that. That's not going to work with me. So Satan says, all right. Temptation number three, verse nine. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. If you've heard or read the story of Jesus' temptation, this one always confuses me. If you're the Son of God, throw yourself off the temple down a 450-foot chasm. I always think, I don't even understand what Satan's trying to do with this one. It seems like a weird temptation. Nothing about that seems tempting to me. What is he doing? Why does he do this? In each instance, Jesus has used God's word to defend himself against the temptation of Satan, to resist these. And so the third and final temptation is actually really subversive. 
It's actually really ingenious. He said, hey, since you're the son of God, and since you're such a Bible guy, quoting God's word all the time, show me. Here's what God's word says. So prove it. Show me that God will be good to his word. Show me that God will keep his word. He says he's going to protect you, so let's find out. Does that sound familiar? Remember the garden. What is it that Satan calls into question? God's word. Did God really say you can't eat of any tree in the garden? No, he didn't say that. He said one tree. Did God really say you were going to die if you eat from it? You're not going to die. You're actually going to get something really good if you do that. It's not even true. I'm not sure I trust this guy. I don't think you should trust this guy either. Sounds a little sketchy, right? That's how he works. He just eats away at that trust. He says, I don't know if you can believe what he says. So he says, hey, Bible guy, prove it. God says he'll protect you, make him protect you. Adam and Eve fell for it. Jesus did it better than they did. Once again, he quotes Scripture. Once again, he quotes Deuteronomy. And here's the quote from Deuteronomy. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. What is that referencing? Do you remember the story? Children of Israel in the wilderness and they're thirsty. It's a familiar conversation. What have you done, Moses? You bring us out here to die? Not just us, by the way, but also our children and our livestock. We're going to die of thirst. Way to go, moron. We're in a desert. And they complain and complain, and Moses goes to God, and he's like, what am I going to do with these people? They are going to kill me. That's what he says. They're about to stone me, God. What does God tell him to do? Take your staff, take the elders, go to this place, strike this rock, I'll make water. And he does. It says, Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord. Okay, that sounds familiar. Now listen to this. They tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? That's the test. God, is that really what you said? Is that really what you want? Are you even there? Are you even listening? That's the question. Satan says, I don't know, Jesus. Can you trust this guy? Can you take him at his word? I mean, if you really believe it, show me. Show me that God can be taken at his word. And Jesus' response is, I don't need to test God's protection. I don't need to test God's love or his faithfulness or his power. That's not a question I need answered. I know. I know it. The last verse in our passage this morning, verse 13. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Jesus goes into the wilderness, into the devastation. He's tempted for 40 days. I would think this is really intense. Luke records these three specific temptations for us, I think for good reason, because they speak to the big story, the same things that hung up the people of Israel, the same things that hung up Adam and Eve that got us into this mess in the first place, the same things we struggle with. Jesus showed us how to do it better, and then the devil leaves for a while. There's that troubling part of this verse 
until an opportune time. From this point, Jesus' ministry begins in earnest. Jesus goes on the offensive, and we see his ministry, and we see all that he does, and all we're going to look at together. He's won this initial battle with Satan, but there's still that peace until an opportune time that sounds ominous. Do you know the next time we see Satan in the Gospel of Luke? It's chapter 22, and it says this, Then Satan entered into Judas, who was one of the twelve. And he went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray Jesus. And they were glad and agreed to give him money, so he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him in the absence of a crowd. Does sought an opportunity sound an awful lot like an opportune time? Satan will make this one last attempt to thwart the ministry of Jesus by having him killed. The irony is, that's actually how we're redeemed. What God knew and no one else knew is that through the death of Jesus and his subsequent resurrection, we would be saved. Satan ultimately is undone by his own plan, which is kind of how God does things. Jesus' response to temptation in the wilderness ultimately, I think, is a question of trust. It's about trust. Because if you look at the three temptations, here's what he says. I trust God's provision. I trust what he will provide for me, even if that includes waiting, even if that includes lack, even if that includes discomfort. Just because I'm uncomfortable does not mean God is not providing for me. The second temptation, Jesus says, I trust God's plan. I don't need to take a shortcut. I don't need the kingdom now. I'll take it the way God is giving it to me. I trust God's plan, even if that includes suffering. I'm going to trust his plan. The third temptation, Jesus says, I'm going to trust God's protection. I trust God's protection, even if that means I die. Then I just assume that's best. That's what it looks like to trust God. I trust him with what he gives. I trust him with what he plans. I trust him with my life. Now, so often we can look at Scripture and then we can say, okay, how does this apply to us? We look at the story of David and Goliath and we say, what are the giants in my life that I need to slay? What are the six stones of truth that I need to put in my satchel of we can really run a risk of trying to apply Scripture where it doesn't apply. But here's the thing. What do we do with the life of Jesus who came to give us an example to follow? We follow it. I think it's appropriate for us to apply what Jesus did to our lives and say, we can trust God like Jesus and we can pattern ourselves after Jesus, because Jesus did it better. He did it better than Adam. He did it better than the children of Israel. He does it better than we're going to do it. So let's take his example and let's follow it. So the question I think applies to us, do you trust God? So do you trust God's provision? Are you satisfied with what he's providing for you, with what he will provide, even if that means waiting, even if that means less, even if that means it's uncomfortable. 
do you trust God's plan for your life? Or are you looking for a shortcut? Are you looking for a way to get what you want faster or in a different way, in a way that you know is not honoring to him and doesn't bring him glory because it's easier? Are you willing to trust yourself to God's plan even if it includes suffering or loss? Do you trust God's protection? Do you trust God enough to surrender your life to him? Even if that includes giving your life for him. How can we possibly live like Jesus? How can we possibly do that? How can we look at Scripture and say, yeah, this applies to me. Just be like Jesus. It's important to remember that Jesus wasn't just God in a man suit. He was a man. He put himself in our place. He faced the temptations like we do so that he could show us how to do it, so that he could give us an example to follow. That's why he's so dependent on the Spirit of God. That's why Luke emphasizes that. That same Spirit is available, accessible to the followers of God today. It's also important to remember that your job is not to be Jesus. Your job is not to be Jesus. Your job is to believe Jesus. And there's a difference to be dependent and submitted so that like Jesus, God can do a work in us and he can accomplish his work through us. Do you hear the distinction? Your job is not to be Jesus. You can't. But your job is to believe Jesus so that you can be like Jesus so that God can accomplish his work in and through you. Believe Depend, submit. What what does it look like for us to do that? Let me give you three things. We'll worship together. Believe in Jesus. When we call on Christ, when we call on him, we get him. That's true for people that are following him. That's true for people who don't know him. When you call on Jesus, you get Jesus. When we believe in what he's done, his saving work, we're saved. I love this quote by Martin Luther. He says, When Satan comes knocking on the door of my heart and asks, Who lives here? The dear Lord Jesus goes to the door and says, Martin Luther used to live here, but he's moved out. Now I live here. (laughs) Okay, now, that's the idea is accurate, theologically not accurate. Okay, Jesus does not live in my heart. We use that language a lot. I'm going to ask Jesus into my heart. He's like, no, I'm going to trust Jesus with my life. I'm going to surrender myself to him. He's going to give me the spirit of God, which will indwell me. The whole idea here is Jesus has my heart. Jesus holds sway over my heart. So when the devil comes knocking, it's already occupied. There's no room for you here. Jesus lives here. And it's better if he answers the door than if I do. I love the picture. Okay, Jesus holds sway over my heart. I believe in Jesus. I've trusted my life to him. I believe in Jesus. I depend on the Spirit. When when we trust Jesus, when we place our faith in him, we get the Spirit. When we acknowledge that Jesus did it better than we do, and he accomplished what we couldn't accomplish by living the life that we couldn't live, then we receive the Holy Spirit. Here's how Galatians says it. Because you are his sons... God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. 
When you believe in Jesus, you get the Spirit of God. And it's through dependence on the Holy Spirit that we can resist temptation and keep ourselves from sin. Do you know that? The Spirit gives you the power to resist sin, to not sin. Here's what it says in Galatians. I know it's shocking. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You won't. You will not sin if you walk by the Spirit. What can I assume from that? If I sin, I'm not walking by the Spirit. If I'm walking by the Spirit, I won't sin. How do I live like Jesus? Power of the Spirit. Dependent on the Spirit. And I can just assume every time I sin, not walking by the Spirit. Believe in Jesus. Depend on the Spirit. And submit to the Word of God. God's Word. Remember it. Learn it. Read it. Be in it. We use it to guard ourselves from the lies of the enemy. Psalm 119. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. I store up God's word in my heart so that I would not sin. We see clearly in the temptation of Adam, in the children of Israel, even in the temptation of Jesus, that Satan will twist God's words. He will manipulate. He'll use God's word to trick us and tempt us. He'll misuse it. But we also see that God's word is a weapon that when it's understood and used properly can defend against the lies of the enemy who wants to trip us up. Jesus did it better. That's true. And you aren't Jesus. Also true. But you're called to be like Jesus. And the only way you do that is by believing him, depending on his spirit, and submitting to the word of God. That's how we do it as his followers. I believe in Jesus. Satan doesn't get sway over my heart because Jesus already has it. I depend on the Spirit of God. If I'm filled with the Spirit, I won't sin. And I submit to the Word of God. We use the Word of God as a weapon against the lies of the enemy. Can I just say, I love the fact that Jesus made himself like us so that we can never go to him and say, but you don't understand You don't know what it's like. You don't know how hard it is. I mean, we can say it, and we probably do. But he's just going to show us his hands and his feet and his side and say, tell me about it. Tell me all about how much you're suffering. I get it. That's why it says in Hebrews, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He knows. He gets it. He just did it better. Do you know how that verse ends? What the next verse is? Let us then, because of that, because we have a high priest, Jesus, who sympathizes with us and has been tempted in every way and never sinned, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you hear that? You have the freedom and permission to approach the throne of grace. And he sympathizes with you, and he gets it, and he's been there, and he says, come to me and find mercy. You have access to the king, and Jesus' death and resurrection give you full access to him. He says, you're mine, and I give you the spirit of my son, and I give you my very words, so believe in Jesus. Jesus. 
and depend on the Spirit and submit to the Word of God. When you're in trouble, give me a call. You have permission to come to me at any time. I'm right here. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for your Word. Thank you for your Son. Thank you for your plan of salvation. We just apologize and repent that we're bad at it and we don't get it and we mess it up all the time and we throw ourselves at your feet and ask for forgiveness and we praise you that you always forgive. We love you. We don't love you as much as we should, so help us to fall more and more in love with you. Help us to praise you now. I pray that now we would worship you and that you would be praised. You're a great God. We thank you that you did it better and traded your amazing, perfect, holy life for our crummy one. Thank you. We love you so much. In your name, amen.